0: Uh, no, for a little while we've been talking about uh, how a multi-generational church uh, blesses each other, honors each other, communicates with each other, passes on wisdom from older to younger—all those things. We've been talking about all those things, and uh, today we're uh, really excited. I—I—I I, I love that um, Pastor Dave Moore was up here uh, doing the baby dedication for his uh, granddaughter Lily. Uh, I thought, as I was watching this happen, and then there's this stream of family and friends out here, I just thought, what a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. Multi-generational blessing, right? Grandfather dedicating his granddaughter. I thought, what an incredible thing. And then here's all these other parts of the generations who are here affirming this, standing with uh, with uh, JJ and, and Jessalyn as they're dedicating themselves as parents and dedicating Lily. I just thought, what an incredible picture of of what we desire for the whole church, that generation to generation we would pass on uh, God's blessing, the wisdom he's given us, and even just the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, to know God, for God to be our greatest treasure and our greatest possession in our lives. Uh, I think that was incredible. Just snapshot this morning, if you took a picture of that, uh, that pretty much sums up what we want to see in a multi-generational church incredible harmony and blessing throughout the generations and there being uh, great love uh, and in the and the knowledge of God being passed on. Well this morning I'm really excited because we're going to talk about one aspect of what you would hope an older generation would be able to pass on to a younger generation and that is teaching about marriage. Right? We we would hope that from uh, one generation to another that uh, the the understanding of what God wants to do in a marriage, and uh, um, how a marriage works and how it should work. We, we want that to be passed on. And so I've actually asked, to, I've got a ringer here this morning, and I'm looking in the audience to see if I can find him. Brian Heaney, just wave, tell me you're here, actually. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. I got nervous there. Uh, you just pulled one on me, got me on my regular seat. Let me just quickly tell you about Brian. Brian, many of you know him uh, as he's been the head of the Christian Counseling, Moose Jaw Christian Counseling Center in Moose Jaw for many years, uh, he's one of the counselors there. One of the three counselors there now, and uh, he—I um, first encountered him when I was a, a freshman, I think, freshman Bible school student, uh, way back in uh, the earliest part of the '90s. And uh, he was challenging us, really challenging us about uh, how we saw ourselves, and and uh, also uh, about. He had, we had classes with him on marriage then when we were just very young and just, you know, idealistic. And we were basically there at Bible college to get married. But then he was laying out how hard it is to be married and how what a big challenge it is to be married and how significant it was. And, and what he was doing for us was giving us a real gut check, a really great gut check at a really crucial point in our lives and really uh I think has, has led to a lot of blessing in a lot of lives. And some of you, I don't know if anyone else, did anyone else take Bible school courses with Brian? He just raise your hand. There's a few others in the room. Yeah, there's a number actually. Uh, you know the blessing that came from the challenging words that he brought to us when we were young. So I've said, Brian, would you come and uh, really bless us this morning and, uh, and talk to us about marriage on Father's Day. We really think this is really important. It's a piece in our lives that we all want to get right. If, if you are married, you want to do it right, and yet a lot of times we find it quite challenging. And so would you welcome Brian Heaney to come and speak to us this morning?
1: Thank you for those kind words, and I want to take this opportunity to uh, this is the first opportunity I've had to talk to the whole church when well those of you showed up, <laughs> and thank you for the offering that you did for the Christian Counseling Center on Christmas Eve. It was um, a blessing financially and also encouraging for those of us who are involved at the center. So thank you very much. We really, 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 really appreciated that. Um, I wanna wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. And uh, guess what I got for Father's Day? <laughs> the, new, the newest warrior jersey that they just unveiled last week. So um, I'm quite pleased. And uh, couldn't resist it, you know, like a little kid gets new, something he really likes, wears it for four days (laughs) or more. I want to make one comment, if that's okay, that has nothing to do with what I'm going to preach on. (laughs) Just a suggestion for those of you who were here last week and uh, heard all about generation, the hurt, the brokenness sometimes that a parent can pass on to a child. One way of moving into your parents' life Is And there were some really good suggestions, and I'm just adding one more. Ask your parent to tell you their story. Okay? Ask ask your parent because they don't think anybody cares about their story. I did it, and I asked my mother to tell me her story. When I asked her, she said, well, I got nothing to talk about. Eventually, I convinced her that maybe it would she talked for six hours about her life. And what I heard is what you will probably hear. If it's a parent that hurt you, you're going to find out that they just took their pain and passed it on to you, and they received it from one of their parents and one of their parents. I'll guarantee that because it happens every time. My mother passed pain on to me, she got it from her dad, her dad got it from his dad, and one more generation, okay? So that's just one word of advice as a counselor, couldn't resist it. I want to apologize too on behalf of all seniors. For those of you who perhaps have wanted an intergenerational relationship of mentoring and so forth, and a lot of the seniors aren't here, so I'll stand in for them, and say we're really sorry that we do that. But you know, part of the reason that they're getting together and having their own camp is because they can they can relax. And what I mean by that is there's no aging. Betty Davis was the first one to say it, but aging is not for sissies. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a it's a journey that is terrifying. And and part of it is because, you know, we can look in the mirror as, and and the first time you do it and you see this old person, you kind of go, where did this guy come from? And and then things change from day to day. One of the things that happens with most men, I can speak for men more than I can for women, is that uh, we grow hair as we get older. It just doesn't grow where we want it it tends to go underground and come out our nose or our ears. (laughs) And it happens overnight. And as it continues, it happens overnight. I'll give you an example. I trimmed my beard on Friday morning because I do it once a week so that, you know, I don't look like Santa Claus because I've got all the other physical features. (laughs) And this morning, I looked in the mirror, happened to be the magnifying mirror. I got a hair growing off my earlobe about this long. Where'd that come from? It wasn't there on Friday. So the reason we hang out in in herds as seniors is because nobody else can see it. If we hang out with young people, they go, whoa, look at the hair coming out of his nose or out of his ears. But when we hang out as old people together, nobody can see it, so we can relax. That's why they're there. <laughs> but because I was going to be up here under the lights, I figured I better get rid of some of them. <laughs> Seriously, a lot of, a lot of seniors don't believe they have anything to offer, and I think that's That's unfortunate because they do. They have a lot of life wisdom, and for some, there's a lot of spiritual maturity. And so um, my privilege and task this morning is to help us focus on plan B. Now, if you heard Steve's sermon on singleness a few weeks ago, you'll know exactly what I mean. If you missed it, then I would highly recommend that you listen to the podcast, assuming it's there. I didn't check. I did, but I didn't find it. And he did a masterful job of dealing with the issue. You really did, Steve. He explained, and I agree, that Paul suggests that singleness is God's plan A for people. In terms of availability and intentionality when it comes to spreading the gospel. And marriage is plan B because it tends to take some of our time, as it should and some of our focus if we're gonna be a good biblical spouse. This morning, I wanna suggest and expand on the idea that marriage is actually God's plan A when we talk about getting to know him. Let me unpack it a little bit. This morning, I wanna suggest that the idea of marriage is actually God's plan and his plan for us to get to know him. As Christians, sometimes we've done an an inadequate job at times of attempting to understand what God's purpose of marriage really is. And so we often have no better concept of marriage than what non-Christians do. Today, rather than focus on techniques on how to improve your marriage, and that may disappoint you, you know, all of this stuff about communication and all that kind of stuff. I want to focus on a design of marriage, just the beginning of it. It's really three parts, and this is kind of part one. And as a consequence of that, we can come up with ideas, particularly as we talk to the Lord about how to improve our marriage. I want to begin by making a statement that will be the guiding principle for everything that I have to say this morning. And here's the statement. Marriage is more about God than it is about us. And the relationship of marriage is designed by God in order to provide a vehicle to transport us into a deeper knowledge of who he is. In other words, it's one way that we can get to know him. It's not the only way, but it's one way. What his character is like, what he's like. I want to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. This is starting in verse 18. If you've got your Bible or it's behind me. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, when we follow the sequence of events there, we see, we see something that seems a little strange to me. It's not, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. And then it's like, it's like God's a senior. He gets sidetracked. Do you know what I mean? As a senior, like the other day, I went to another room to get something. I got there, didn't have a clue why I was there. So I stood there for about a minute, was getting nowhere, so I backtracked and went to where I started to doing the things that I was doing, hoping that it would occur to me what it was I wanted. It did, and so I retraced it and went and got what I finally wanted. In other words, I got sidetracked. There was something missing. And it almost feels like that because God says it's not good for the man to be alone make a helper suitable, and then he gets Adam to name all of the animals. He parades them all past him. Then he puts Adam to sleep, performs the first surgery, and builds a woman. I want to suggest to you that the sequence of events and Adam's response are major clues as to the real purpose of marriage. You see, in reality, Adam wasn't alone. (laughs) He'd go for a walk in the evening with God. He was surrounded by animals that he could, that were all friendly. Imagine if you can, though, as you're standing there and Adam, God is bringing all the animals past you and you get to name them the way Adam did. I want to suggest to you that as that would happen, uh, there would be a growing awareness that there's not one creature that I can have a relationship with. I mean, they're cute, but I can't have a relationship with them. I mean, let's, you know, hippos are cute, giraffes are cute, elk are cute, but I can't have a relationship with them. So I would would guess that as what's going on in Adam and the reason God did it is to bring heighten Adam's awareness that there's no one like him. There's no creature that was equal to him. And so Adam recognized that. And when he sees Eve, as God walks her down the path to Adam... He recognizes that right away. and, And you can see that in his response. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Come on, guys, was that the first things that would come out of your mouth if you saw this woman who was gorgeous, beautiful, and naked to boot? Really? It sounds like such an antiseptic kind of a statement but that's what he was aware of. This is a creature that I can have a relationship with. She's just like me, only different, and I love the differences. See, again, the, kind of, the clue is really in God's response, and we read Genesis 2.23, and it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones. However, when Jesus is questioned in Matthew chapter 19, some of the Pharisees came to him, say, testing him and saying, is it lawful for the man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said for this cause a man? You see, Jesus says God said it. Now, Jesus could be wrong, but not likely, <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you that's the first word of prophecy in Scripture. God knew what he was talking about. Adam didn't. Adam's not going to talk about a mother and a father. He didn't have one. God did. He knew what a mother and father would look like. And so God makes this statement, and that's exactly what Jesus says. So you see, when Jesus is questioned, centuries later... Concerning the issue of divorce, he simply quotes from Genesis and restates that one man, one woman, who be, will become one. Now, God's math must be different than my early education because that's not the way I was taught. One plus one doesn't equal one. You put that down the test in your grade one, you get a wrong answer. The joining together is an extraordinary description, not just of a relationship with an equal, it's a oneness relationship. In in God's word, he introduces a concept that is descriptive of a unique kind of relationship that is not available in any other human relationship. It can go so far, but then it has to stop because it's oneness complete, body, or body, soul, and spirit. And the key to understanding God's intent for marriage is keeping this concept of oneness alive. That's the mystery of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The mystery of oneness is what defines the uniqueness of marriage, The only other relationship that God describes that way in Scripture is the relationship that exists within the Trinity. Think of it. We have an opportunity to experience something of that, and that's what God wants, that we enter into this and then begin to get to know him. So why would he plan or design marriage to be that way? In other words, what was he thinking? I'm going to suggest he designed it that way by allowing us to experience in the visible world that which is true in the invisible world. We can get to know him because we can't see the Trinity as they function. You and I are never going to understand the Trinity. (laughs) If we could understand it, we'd be better and greater than him. Not going to happen, not even in eternity. But he wants us to try, attempt, to get to know him. That's his priority. He knows you. He knows me. He knows what's going on inside us, what we're thinking about. He knows the words we're going to speak even before we say them. But he wants us to get to know him because if we can get to know him, even partially, then we're going to have a much closer, more intimate relationship. That's always his priority. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What we see in the visible world can teach us a great deal about God. That's what he's saying. We can begin to understand his power and his nature. It's clear that God wants us to learn something about who he is by observing what we can see. And so God wants to teach us or allow us to experience something about who he is in this relationship of marriage. What's it like to be in a covenant relationship and love? You see... When you're single, you can have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. And you can, when things get tough or they get unlovable, they're not very nice, you can get a headache and go home. You can come up with some lame excuse about why you have to leave. And you could be really busy for the next day or two and not talk to them. How does that work real well when you're married? Have you tried it? Does it draw you closer together? You've got to stay there. And you've got to work it out somehow. And you've got to figure out what it's going to look like. You see, now, God doesn't have to put up with the sin that we have to put up with. But the sin is in not just your spouse. It's in you, too. <laughs> Sorry, that's the way it is but he wants us to learn the pay the payment the hard part of loving someone who at times is not that lovable what are we going to learn from that oh, i might learn something about how challenging it is even for god at times to love me when i'm being a jerk he does he does he doesn't quit It's not the picnic you might think it is. Maybe it's a real test of what real love looks like. A few moments ago, I said the marriage is more about God than it is about us. And the marriage is a, a vehicle to transport us into a deeper knowledge of who he is. It's one way that we can get to know him By experiencing firsthand what a oneness relationship really looks like. That means that God's design and purpose for marriage is more than just roommates. It's more than common law. It's more than just living together. It's even more than just friendship and companionship. It's to experience oneness, love, and intimacy. That is a picture, an image of the oneness that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God wants us to get to know Him in a way that we could not otherwise do, if we, and especially if we weren't believers. God in me, in my spouse, my spouse, your spouse, yourself, and God. You have a picture, a little picture. Of the Trinity. Marriage is more about God than it is about us. Marriage was designed by God to be a copy, a picture, a shadow, a display here on earth of what's true in heaven, in the spiritual realm, the Godhead, and that's a mystery. God helps us, and He teaches us theology to get to know him better by creating this relationship that is in some small way similar to a microcosm of or a copy, a a picture, a shadow of what his nature is like. And therefore, we can get to know him better as well. And here's the other part of it. We get the opportunity to represent him to the rest of creation, both the visible and the invisible world. You see, the visible and the invisible world, they do wonder about God. They don't, even, even the angelic realm doesn't understand grace and salvation. The Bible says that. They don't understand. It. Not we do. They look at it, but they, can't, they don't get it because it didn't happen to them. So... They look, people watch you, non-Christians watch you and your marriage. You can give, you and your spouse can give them a picture of what God's like. Without preaching, just loving your spouse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. To the young people that are here, I just want to say, when God said don't become an equally yoked with an unbeliever, he really wasn't trying to spoil your fun. He really wasn't. In other words, if you take all of the other gender, okay, all of the population, he's saying there's a whole slug of them that you shouldn't get married to. Why? But there's a good-looking one there. you don't, You don't get it. And the reason is because that person doesn't have the same potential to love you the way you have to love them. They don't, because they don't know the Lord. And love is the fruit of the Spirit. They don't have that. Jesus says in John chapter 15, without me, you can't do it. You can't love. You can't. So you're still required to love that person, but they don't have the potential or the ability until they come to Christ to be able to love you back. And that can be a really... Painful experience and relationship. And if you've ever talked to people who are in that relationship, they'll tell you that. Does that make sense? The mystery of this whole thing is that we do not and will not, we're never going to fully comprehend it, but because God is so intent. On inviting us into this intimate relationship, and he wants us to get to know him, he creates this relationship of marriage that is to somehow or other be an experience of what it's like to be deeply loved by someone else. In other words, you have the opportunity and privilege. Your spouse has the opportunity and privilege to put flesh around God's love. That is the biggest, greatest ministry you will ever have, ever. No matter what you do, no matter how much God's gifted you. And it becomes really a complete oneness relationship. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we are three parts. There's spirit, soul, and body. So the goal of marriage is oneness in spirit, soul, and body. And I'm going to simply focus for just the next few minutes on the spiritual part of it. When couples are asked the question, how close are you spiritually, there are usually two responses. Many say we're not spiritually close or we're not as close as we could be. The second response sounds like this. We would like to be closer. We need to and want to be, but we're not sure how to do it. Many couples, if or when they try to talk about, their spirit, about spiritual intimacy, discover that they would like to be spiritually closer, but they're uncomfortable with the reality of it. What is it that keeps them from developing that kind of spiritual intimacy? One, they don't know how, because they've either had a poor or no role model in their parents. And secondly, they just don't have the time. In our society, with the busy schedules of activities and both of the kids, of the parents, they don't have time to connect at a spiritual level, They hardly have time to say hello. I think thirdly, the enemy of your soul and your marriage is fighting diligently to hinder or deter or bring distance in your relationship. That's all he needs to do is just bring distance. And then you're not going to reflect the relationship of the Trinity. And so I would suggest... Men, it's Father's Day. I'm going to talk to the men. Be warriors and fight for your marriage. Don't leave it up to the wife. Don't leave it up to her. Steve mentioned it last week, and I totally agree. I'm to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. Every single one of us who have a relationship today with Christ, is because he took the first step not us. Romans chapter 1, not one single person has ever sought God. No man seeks after God, not even one. may not have felt like that to you, but that's what happens. And we've never oftentimes been challenged or taught to do so. I'm saying this not because I'm proud of it, because it's the truth. I pastored for five years, full-time, one-year, part-time. I never mentioned from the pulpit one single time the value of pursuing spiritual oneness. Not the way I'm going to mention it here in a minute. You see, what we're saying here is that above all, I am, you are as a believer, married to a fellow pilgrim who's on a journey with the Lord and you get to share some common experiences the highs the lows of the journey you share you can share the details of your personal journey with him, with the lord with someone who knows you deeply and can encourage you and understand marriage is designed to provide an opportunity for a husband and wife individually and as a couple to pursue their relationship with the lord in a deep vibrant, growing, intimate way. And then out of that fullness of that relationship that you have with the Lord, you can encourage your spouse in their pursuit of God as well. You can also invite your spouse into your spiritual journey. I, over the years, have counseled, it's very rarely that I'm not counseling someone in full-time ministry, And I've heard lots of pastors' wives, not just one, lots of pastors' wives, who have made the comment, I learn more about what God's doing in my husband's life when he's in the pulpit than I do at home. Because he doesn't talk about it. That hinders spirit oneness. To exercise a really vital part of spiritual life together, and that's to pray together. There was a book out a number of years ago, and I see it's it's been uh, updated and revamped. But in the original, and I think it's still there now, it says that uh, the statistic about the topic of praying together as a Christian couple, there's only about 4% that are doing it. They don't pray for each other, with each other a recent study that was incorporated by, there was a study and then they incorporated some statistics that they got from, the, from Gallup. It says here, and here's the quote, unfortunately, not very many Christian couples read the Bible together or pray together. The number I've heard is that only about 4% of Christian couples pray together on a daily basis. The reason might be related to the fact that many pastoral couples do not pray together. Their percentage is only about 6%. The important takeaway from both this study and the Gallup study is that if you want to strengthen your marriage and even divorce-proof your marriage, develop a consistent pattern of reading the Bible together and praying together in your home. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't know there was value in praying together as a couple. I didn't. You know, you can say, well, you should have, you doughhead. Well, maybe, but I didn't. So it never occurred to me. I prayed for Sharon, I would say, pretty much every day. But I didn't pray with her, for her. That's the difference. I didn't pray with her. People would come to my office as a pastor, and I would pray with them. The only one who didn't have a pastor in our church was my wife. And I'd like to say that that's different nowadays, but it's not. Sharon and I have the opportunity to uh, be program directors for Carith Retreats, which is an extension of focus on the family, and they're all people in leadership. And we hear the same thing all the time when I bring the issue up. They're not praying together for each other. They pray for each other, some, most of them, but not with them. And I want to tell you, it creates, it creates an intimacy for a couple to pray with each other for each other. I'll give you an example, and this is, this is not accurate, okay, in terms of the details. But it's pretty close, Not somebody from the city, okay. Not even from the province, okay. Non-Christian woman. She was coming to counsel for counseling, and I, I always offer to pray with everybody every single session, and I don't, I don't kind of keep track of those. I give them the opportunity to say yes or no. Some people say no, and that's fine. They have the right to do that, and so. But I ask them every time. That way, I don't have to remember who doesn't want it and who does. So I would pray with this woman. She was hard. Oh, my, she was a hard woman. I liked her, but she was hard. We probably had eight or nine meetings together, and every time I'd ask her, to, can I pray with you before you go? And, nope, nope, no problem. The very last time that she was there, I said, can I pray with you before you go? She said, yes. I said, oh, okay. Well. So we bowed our heads. And I prayed for her, and I made it kind of—you know—I didn't didn't preach a sermon. I tried to keep it short, and so I didn't want to scare her. <laughs> when I lifted my head and looked at her, the tears were streaming down her cheeks and dripping onto her blouse. Why? Because prayer, praying with someone, creates intimacy. And if you're doing it with your spouse, you know that that's true. I'm not gonna ask you how many are doing it, but I know from experience that most of you are not doing it. You wanna be closer, here's a step to be closer. You can even do it on the phone if you're out of town. Steve mentioned Eston College. I I still teach there. But when I phone home every day and talk to my wife, we pray together on the phone. You see, there's got to be something different about our relationship of marriage as believers. It's got to be more than just the fact that we come to a church on Sunday morning and don't go bike riding. The difference is that we're together walking this path of this pilgrimage with the Lord. And we get to share the details of that with someone really close to us that we might not otherwise share. I mean, if I'm teaching or preaching, it probably isn't going to encourage people. And I talk about my prayer life where it feels like my prayers hit the ceiling and I'm ready to quit. But I could talk to my wife about it. About how my initial response is not to care for the person, not to forgive the person, not to pray for the person. My first initial response is to smoke them. Because I don't like them. Now, am I the only one in the place that ever has that initial response? Maybe I am. I don't know. I, it would be good if I was, but I kind of don't think so. Walking with the Lord is not easy. Right? It's not easy. I mean, we, we, we like to talk like it's easy, but it's not. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It's, it's like taking up your cross daily and dying. Really, that's exciting and fun? No, it's not. It's really not. But I can talk to someone close to me who deeply cares, who I can also hear from and be able to share that together. And that's what God intends, to have that kind of intimacy because we're reflecting something about the intimacy that exists within the Trinity. And people will look And they will see something different. They may not be able to put their finger on it, but it will create in them a thirst because most marriages, particularly outside the church, are not that great because they can't love the way we have the potential of loving. Right? So how close could it be? Just some suggestions I think sometimes the very first step in becoming spiritually one is not what you both need to add to your schedule because it's probably overpacked now. Your plate is full and every, things are dropping off your plate. What you need to do to figure out first is what you need to subtract. What can I take off the plate so that as you as a couple, are asking yourselves, if we don't even have time to pray together, what are we doing that we could eliminate so that we could start praying together for each other? That's the place to start. Because otherwise, the whole concept of praying for each other becomes another burden, and the plate looks like you're just going to the buffet. just leave you with a few questions that you can kind of talk over as a couple and ask your spouse the question what would you like me would you like me to make you more aware of how God is writing his story on my heart would you like me to let you become more a part of my spiritual journey with all that God's up to in me would you like me to pray more for you and with you as well as, you, as let you pray for me with me? Ask those questions. It may be a painful experience to hear the answer, but not likely. As my spouse, what is one significant area that you would suggest that we change or abandon in order to enrich our relationship with the Lord and therefore with each other. Talk about it. Talk about it. Because the closer you can draw together spiritually, the more you'll reflect the Trinity, and the more people will be attracted to the Lord, and you will find a richness of relationship that you otherwise wouldn't know, and find the joy that a real marriage can bring to you and your spouse and all you'll do is question why you didn't start it sooner lord bless you i told you he'd-